Romans chapter 5. If you take your Bibles and join me today in Romans chapter number 5. As you're turning, let me ask this question. Have you ever loved someone until you found out something about them? Have you ever even liked someone, but the more you got to know them, the less you actually liked them? So it could be a neighbor, it could be a politician, a friend, even a family member. The better you got to know the person, the less you liked them. And you know, when you think about liking someone and then that next level of loving someone and then learning something about that person that you didn't know before, it can be quite unsettling. You know, there are certain aspects that are revealed about their character. And they might be subtle at first, but it's almost like the more you get to know them, the less the old adage is, you know, the, this idea that, you know, love is blind only goes so far. You start to see things that weigh on your evaluation of the person. Maybe it wasn't some sudden revelation of a failure on their part. They, they, were, they were just something that, that begins to grow on you and it weighs on you and your interactions. Maybe it was something sudden. Maybe there was some piece of information that was revealed and once you learned that about the other person, everything changed. They were unfaithful. They stole they lied, they double-crossed or gossiped. And plainly put, you simply didn't know these things when you first thought you loved them. And now you know, and, and that has made all the difference. If you'd have known these things before, you would have acted in some way, shape, or form differently. Once upon a time, there was a king whose son was a rebel but the king loved his son very deeply. And through the process of time, the son's rebellion actually brought about the overthrow of the kingdom. The king fled for his life and he was accompanied by those who remained loyal to him and to his reign. They fled into the forest and there the son pursued his father king with the goal of taking not only the kingdom, but at this point, the life of his own father. As the battle unfolded, the king's son was killed. And when the news of the victory reaches the ear of the king, the boy's father, listen to what filled the ears of all within reach. And the king, that is David, was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee? O Absalom, my son, my son. It's interesting that no matter what it is that David learned about his son, his love for his son remains unchanged. It seems to be what it is that God saw about David's heart that was somewhat reflective of his own. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, we read that the Lord had sought him a man after his own heart. We often speak about the love of a mother and rightly so, but this is a father's love. 
representative of the father's love. Although David was well aware of all that his rebellious son had done and done against him personally, yet still he loved him. This is after Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people of Israel, had publicly slept with his father's wives, had begun a war with the intent of killing his father, the king. Yes, David was the king, but David had the heart of another king, the king of love, the king, the kind of father that once you have been born into his family, there is absolutely nothing you can do to be removed from that love. When we began our study in the series in the book of Romans, we began looking at in chapter one, the portraits of a godly man. We saw the apostle Paul revealed in some ways that were quite insightful. In fact, it gave some credibility to the person who is going to expound the depths of the wonderful truths of the doctrine of salvation. We went into chapter two though, and we started to see the very dark backdrop of sin. In chapters three and four, we started to see this glimmer of hope, the dawning of deliverance. And now in chapters five and six, we're going to see something that for the Christian faith is revolutionary. It is the gospel of grace. Something that is so revolutionary to the mind of man who finds himself almost continually predisposed to work to get. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter five. Let's begin in Romans chapter five, verse number five, and then follow along with me, if you will, down to verse number eight. Here the Bible records for us, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. The first thing we're gonna look at today from this passage of scripture is that which we'll simply refer to as poured out, poured out. Again, verse number five, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. There's a progression that the apostle Paul begins to build in this passage that is not unique to Romans chapter five. In fact, it's seen in a couple other places in scripture and it's most clearly, most easily seen in a passage that you could probably quote. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 13. It says, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. That word charity there again is a word we're familiar with. It's the word agape, the highest form of love Love not known apart from God's introduction of it. A love not, not generated by man. The highest of faith, hope, and charity. 
is in fact charity, which is love. Now notice how the Apostle Paul begins to introduce this. We, we've looked at like, oh, the dark backdrop of sin. Oh, we, we saw the desperate need we had for deliverance. Then there was this little glimmer, this little dawning of deliverance. And now we see very boldly proclaimed this gospel of grace. Notice how he does it in verse number one in chapter five. He says, being justified by faith. There it is. And now abideth faith, hope, love, charity. Verse number two, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Then again in verse number five, and hope maketh not ashamed. Faith, hope. And then we get to, to that apex of what we've been looking at. And that is verse number five, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Now the word shed abroad is a beautiful Greek word and, and it has lots of meanings, but they keep bringing us back to the same place. They, they mean spilled out, poured over. And you know, when you pour something out, when you spill something, there, there's no retrieving. There's no, I'm not, I'm not measuring this out. I'm going to give just a little bit. It's like, oh, it's spilled out. So personal example, okay. This last week, in fact, it was probably on Friday morning, I go to sit down at my desk in my study, had a nice tall glass of ice water that I set carefully on my desk. And then do you ever, when you sit down and you're getting ready and I'm, I'm getting ready to do some more study and, and I move books around, well, I moved you know, the glass around in a way that it shouldn't been moved. It's the first time and Lord willing, the last time that I will ever do this, but I spilled water all over my desk. It was a, an untouched glass. I mean, it was full to the brim. And when I did that, it just spills all over the place. And you know what? There is no doing at that time. There is no retrieving. There's only recovering. So books were flying and things were going and, and computers were sparking. I mean, it was an exciting time. Okay. So what am I doing at that time? I'm not trying to get back what I had lost. And do you know what it is that God says he does purposely for us? He spills something out with no intention of retrieval. It is this which I desire to spill out, to pour out upon you. It's poured lavishly, unselfishly, with no intent on stopping, limiting, or measuring its flow. Charles Hodge wrote, if God loved us because we loved him, he would only love us so long as we love him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends, as the apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. This kind of miraculous, God-initiated love remains for us this wonder of wonders. There is a voice that is, I suppose to many in here, immediately recognizable. And especially if you have some years already under your belt. His name is George Beverly Shea. Um, George Beverly Shea died not so long ago. He died on, on April 16th, 2013. And he died at the ripe old age of 104 years. And maybe some of you can actually almost now hear him sing the words that he wrote. And he wrote the words to the wonder of it all.
There's the wonder of sunset at evening. The wonder of sunrise I see. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. And his love does not come in little droplets. It is not measured based on our obedience. Instead, it is just continually spilled out, poured out, shed abroad in our hearts. And this is not a one-time event. It is a continual operation. The flow of his love is there. The only variableness rests upon you. Your desire to simply bask in this flow. The Bible records it this way. In Psalm chapter 81, verse number 10, it says, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. How foolish for a thirsty man to be standing under the waterfall of refreshment, but fail to open his mouth to drink. The love of God continually spilled out, poured out upon any who would thirst and have their thirst quenched in him. We most often love another because of what we find to be lovely. This is not what God does. If we look down a little bit further in our passage, in fact, look down at verse number six in Romans chapter five. Notice again the kind of people, the type of people that God is pouring out his love upon. Verse number six, for when we were yet without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love is unquestionably not referencing our love for God That would be understandable, that a man should love God. However, that God should love us, that is amazing. Have you ever watched another person fall in love with someone and then you kind of raise an eyebrow and you say, what in the world do they see in them? Have you ever thought about God looking at mankind and then more specifically to the one you probably know better than most and that is yourself and wonder what is it that God found lovely in you and yet God commendeth his love toward us. If there was a theme upon which most songs in some way, shape or form mention or weave this this thought, this, this thread throughout the course of the song, what would the theme be? I suspect it it doesn't matter the age or the time, the, the people, the culture. I suspect that love is the strongest theme of music throughout all of the ages. And I would also suspect that in the Christian realm, where music takes on even greater significance, I would also, this is just a a, a surmising on my part, but I would surmise that the love of God is the theme that catches the ear of the artist who writes more than any other theme. We see it again when Charles Wesley first came to know Christ personally. 
When Charles Wesley came to this reassurance and knowledge that Christ had saved him, he wrote a hymn that is even to this day one of my all-time favorites. Listen to what he wrote. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free for oh my God, it found out me amazing love. How can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? Amazing yet true, God poured out his love upon me. Do you know if you keep coming back to that powerful theme, we keep coming away from God, how unlike me are you? You are set apart from mankind and you are God alone. Well, the first thing we see in this passage is that love poured out. But look at the next thing. In fact, the, the next part of verse number five, and that is poured in. Not only poured out, but notice poured in. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So how can we begin to understand the magnitude of this love? Well, God allows us to taste the enormity of this gift by pouring his love into our very hearts. Okay, now, now prior to this pouring in, we might have some, some outward appreciation for, but not this personal understanding of. Okay, so let's imagine for just a moment. So, so I want you to think with me, and this might be a hard world to imagine, but let's imagine for just a moment a world that was only, in a sense, this one-dimensional world of, of this, this length and breadth and height and depth. This is the world that we live in, this three-dimensional world. But imagine a world that is totally flat. We, we call it flatland. It would be peopled by creatures who measured distance horizontally. They could understand a circle but they couldn't understand a globe. They could understand a square, but they couldn't understand a cube. There is something that is, is approachable, but not understandable about something other than anything that is purely flat. They would understand long and short, but have no words for up and down or high and low. We might talk to them about the third dimension, but they simply can't comprehend it. But if we were able by some supernatural means to give them some nature capable of experiencing up and down, high and low, then they would know what it is that we're talking about. When you think about these citizens of Flatland, there would be many that would look at them with some strange oddity, like, well, I, I have no clue as to what you're talking about. But other people, 
who also have this supernatural enabling, eyes to see, would nod with an understanding because they too have experienced something beyond the flatland. Once Christ fills our lives, we begin to perceive our experience in ways that otherwise are completely incomprehensible. Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend, like, oh, I, I comprehend this. With whom? With the saints, what is the, here it is, the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. As children of God, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we can now see with eyes that formerly could not understand. Okay, this was back in the late 30s that this little little uh, device was first introduced. And some of you in this room and, and some of you watching will have very little understanding of this, although there may be some that will say immediately, I know exactly what that is. In fact, some of you might still have one of these in an old toy box that you keep on the ready when the grandkids come over. It's a little camera-like device and it's called a Viewmaster. How many of you know what I'm talking about right now? Lots of you do. How many of you don't know what I'm talking about? Okay, there's still several. A Viewmaster is a little device and, and you would take a little round disc and slide that disc. It's about the size of a CD for most of you who don't know what I'm talking about. A little cardboard disc and it would have these, these, um, these a little piece of film that would go around it and you'd slide that inside the Viewmaster and then you'd hold it up to your eyes. Now, just looking at this flat little disc wouldn't take you anywhere. But many of you can relate to sliding that little disc in the Viewmaster and you'd look and there's a little lever on the side and you'd pull the lever down and you could be transported to places like the Grand Canyon or Carlsbad Canyon, or, or to the city of Paris and see the Eiffel Tower. And you could see it with dimension that simply looking at the disc itself could never provide. To look at the disc alone, it means very little. But to actually engage in something and look inside, you have this full appreciation of something that you were shielded from incapable of seeing before. Such it is with the love of God. It is not only poured out upon the saints. God says, I want you to understand something personally. And so he begins to pour into us something that we cannot fully contain, but now we can start to see and begin to appreciate. Hey, let me ask you, has the love of God been actually poured into your heart? He poured it out, and the moment that you trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, it was actually poured into your life. But there's one other thing that we're gonna look at today. Yeah, it was poured out, the love of God. It is poured into every believer, 
And now let's look at one other thing towards the end of verse number five. And that is what we'll refer to as poured over, poured over. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And here's our expression, by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The person who delivers this love and who continually dwells within us is the Holy Spirit. So we understand this. This is the, the third person of the Trinity. The, this person of the Godhead that is fully equal with the Godhead. This Holy Spirit is the one that now helps me to actually grasp and understand, breathes into me that which is the love of God. The word ghost that's mentioned in this passage, the, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. It's an interesting word. In fact, in the Greek, the word is pneuma, pneuma. This, this is a word that we're not unfamiliar with today. We, we get the English word pneumatic from this very Greek word pneuma. So we understand things like, um, well, you would understand something like a pneumatic tool, a tool that works with air, with wind. Um, rubber tires, when they were first invented, they were actually called pneumatic tires. Pneumatic tires because they were filled with air, filled with breath, so to speak. Th there is this understanding that, that if I have a hard time breathing, there is some issue with my lungs. Oftentimes we say the person has pneumonia. All of these come back to the idea of wind, breath, air. In Genesis, God spoke or breathed out and the pneumas, the Holy Spirit moved and creation occurred. The, the Bible records it in Genesis chapter one, verse number one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth and the spirit of God, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Albert Barnes said this about that, that Old Testament word spirit, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Albert Barnes said the Hebrew word is beautiful. It belongs to the class of words that are onomatopoeic, that is formed in imitation of natural sounds, like the buzz of bees, the quack of ducks, the crackle of fire, the hiss of a serpent. The Hebrew word for breath is the sound of exhaling, ruach. That the breath of God, the breathing, the exhaling of God, the spirit of God moves and something powerful happens over the face of the earth. Have you ever thought about the dynamic transformation that happens when the breath of God breathes upon, so to speak, mankind through the person of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever thought about the fact that to my knowledge, there is no scriptural evidence of God ever having to inhale? And yet we see this God who continually breathes out and that which is powerful happens that God even took of the, the elements of the earth and he formed and fashioned man and then God breathes out into man and man animates and he becomes this living soul. The Holy Spirit is the holy breath of almighty God. 
The one who breathes out all life and who moves mysteriously as this holy wind that is continually pouring out, pouring in and pouring over us. He is that constant gentle breeze of refreshment and love. And it must be noted that the Holy Spirit of God is the agent of God's love, always breathing out, but never needing or never breathing in. In Isaiah chapter two, to contrast the the breath of God from the breath of mankind. In Isaiah chapter two, verse 22, the Bible says, see she from man whose breath is in his nostrils. That there is something necessary that I continually breathe out and breathe in. He says, for wherein is he to be accounted of? He he is limited, he is nothing. He is in constant need of air. There are few, but some in here who understand the need that your body has for air when it cannot find sufficient oxygen to fill its lungs. There are those in here that may have found themselves in a situation most oftentimes underwater when we, we, for whatever reason, we find ourselves in a place insufficient to provide life for us. We have to breathe. And sometimes we might even watch something through, through, through a documentary, through something on television where we see someone who is underwater and maybe you almost subconsciously begin to take a breath because they're not breathing. And at some point we become uncomfortable because it is time to take another breath. But not God. God who sufficiently never needs to breathe in but has the sufficiency to always breathe out upon mankind who stands in need of the powerful breath of God. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he, this continual source in us because we have the gift of his, and then it says spirit. And you know what the word literally is? Because we have the gift of his breath. What is it that God has empowered us to be able to do? Because he has poured out his love. Because we have opened wide our mouths and he has poured in us. Now there's the opportunity, even for that which is poured over us, to be the agents of that which is now poured over our own community. To pour this over our families. To pour this over our spouses. To pour this over the lost. To pour this over those who might see themselves as our enemies and love them even as Christ also loved us. He has poured in us that we might flow out and over to others that very same breath of love that has poured over and in us. Let me ask this when we start to contemplate as we conclude the love of God. Do you ever doubt that love? If it was just us and and we were sharing candid thoughts, have you ever had moments where you wonder, does God love me as much at this moment in time as he did at another moment in time? Like, I, I don't know that I have pleased God and served him in the manner with which he is befitting. And I, I just don't know if he loves me as much right now as he did yesterday. 
the, the, the story behind the hymn, The Love of God, the lyrics for the song, for the, the hymn, were written by a man named F.M. Lehman. The, the first two verses he had already written, and Lehman was struggling with the third verse. The hymn was unfinished. He was actually in a service, and he had heard a pastor quote uh, a poem that was taken from the walls of an asylum, a small room, and there a man who inhabited the room, and it's reported died in the same, had scratched the words for what Lehman used as the third verse of the song. And this man wrote, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. This is the way God loves you, with an unbreakable, unmerited, unparalleled love. He loves you not because you had your devotions this morning, or because you invited someone to church, or because you were patient with your children, or kind to your neighbors. He loves you not because you taught Sunday school this morning or sang in the choir or volunteered for VBS or for any host of reasons. He may be pleased with you regarding these things, but the presence of those actions or the lack thereof has never altered his love for you. He loves us in a way that we are so often unfamiliar with in human terms. Our human love is so often a reciprocal love. In fact, it's demonstrated and even stated in scripture. We love him because he first, the great initiator of love, because he first loved us. In, in one of the early, deeply impactful books that I came across and read, I came upon a passage of scripture or a passage in the book that was powerfully impactful for me. The book is a beautiful book, and if you've never read it, I would strongly recommend it. It was through this book, and I read it back in my college days, that I started to understand more clearly the characteristics of God. It's written by a man named A.W. Tozer and the book is called The Knowledge of the Holy. At the beginning of each of the chapters, Tozer begins to expound the different attributes and characteristics of Almighty God. But at the beginning of each chapter, Tozer begins with a prayer. He's simply offering some thoughts and, and it's as if he pauses to say, before we approach on this new holy ground, let's take just a moment and enter into his presence through prayer. When you come to chapter 20 in his knowledge of the holy, you come to the chapter where Tozer addresses the love of God and Tozer offers a prayer to help us approach this chapter. 
let me offer the prayer that Tozer wrote. Our Father which art in heaven, we thy children are often troubled in mind, hearing within us at once the affirmations of faith and the accusations of conscience. We are sure that there is in us nothing that could attract the love of one as holy and as just as thou art. Yet thou hast declared thine unchanging love for us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. If nothing in us can win thy love, nothing in the universe can prevent thee from loving us. Thy love is uncaused and undeserved. Thou art thyself the reason for the love wherewith we are loved. Help us to believe the intensity, the eternity of the love that has found us. Then love will cast out fear and our troubled hearts will be at peace. Trusting not in what we are, but in what thou hast declared thyself to be. And to that he says, amen. Campus Church, you can strive to earn the love of God. And with that striving, you'll find it will never cease. You can't earn the love of God, but you can allow the love of God that has been lavishly poured out to, as you open your mouth, you can see that that very love is poured in. And then by the sustaining always breathing out power of the spirit, you can not only experience it yourself, but now be this agent of love for a world that is desperately in need. We love verses like John 3, 16, which says, for God so loved the world, but do we truly begin to approach the magnitude of that love? If you're here today and you are striving to earn the love of God, or if you feel like he probably doesn't love me as much today because of the way my weekend went, then you haven't truly understood the character of the lover of your soul. He loves you because of himself, not because of you. And may we today simply bask in the immensity of that love and then truly understand what it means to serve the lover of our soul.